morning. In the 1990s, there was a television program and called Early Edition. And it was about a man who had the amazing experience of an orange cat who delivered daily to him a copy of the Chicago Sun-Times. The twist of the story was he always got tomorrow's paper today. So this man had 24 hours notice of everything that happened in the city of Chicago, every disaster, every collapsed bridge, every burning building, every horrible car accident or even murder. And the whole show revolved around Gary Hobson spending his day taking drastic action to save people from various calamities before they occurred. It's a little bit of a picture of what we find in this text that's before us. This man is uh, basically been called on the carpet, and we see the drastic action that he takes to save his skin. Looking out after number one is the title of this sermon. Now, if you talk to parishioners around the country or the world, and you ask them about this particular passage, most of your congregants that you will someday serve in various capacities will tell you they have never heard a sermon on this text. Because this is one of those texts that falls into that difficult category where it seems to put God in a horrible light because God seems, to, or the, man, the owner seems to be commending this, uh, this manager for his actions. Well, before we look at the text, I just want to say in a general way that um, whenever you go to Scripture in general and find things that happen that are shocking, uh, I often say that if the Bible was a, a movie, it would be rated R, right? There's so many things that happen in the Bible that are shocking and amazing. And the Bible accurately records what really happens in the world. So because the Bible records what happened, it doesn't necessarily mean that's what should have happened. A lot of things happen in the Bible that God does not commend. Just because they're in the Bible, it often is what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. And secondly, when you come to a parable like this in particular, we should avoid uh, looking at the parable as if it's some kind of extended allegory where we have to figure out what every part means and the, you know, the manager must surely... Uh, or the steward must surely be us, and, and God is the owner, and what does the wheat represent? What does the oil represent? All of that. We're actually going to step back and take this as it really comes to us and ask the question, what is the big overarching point of this parable? And we're going to see that the big point revolves around two key words, which we want to make sure we leave with today. One is the word decisive. That's really crucial to this passage, decisive action. And the other is acting shrewdly or cunningly. Now, this parable actually falls in a category of parables that you'll already be familiar with and you probably have heard a lot of sermons on. Uh, one is the parable of the two foundations. Remember the man who built his house on the rock, the other built his house on the Sand, right? You know the parable, right? And so the, the storm comes. It's about what someone, in this case, doesn't do uh, in order to prepare for the final judgment of God. And the person who was held on the sand did not anticipate what was going to come, this great storm or the great final uh, eschaton. Another parable in this category is the, the, the rich man, remember who um, 
had a great crop one year. He was so excited. His crops had, came, had come in a hundredfold, and he was just amazed at the crop. So he decided he would tear down his barns and build even bigger barns and store up all that he had, and then he could sit back and relax and eat and drink and eat merry because he had so much laid up for the future. He had the wrong kind of preparation, and the Bible calls him a fool because he did not realize this very night that his soul, his life, was demanded of him. So this parable is actually in that particular genre of preparing for judgment. This uh, rich man is a, is a typical of that time period, had a steward who cared for his uh, affairs, and he comes to find out, we don't know how, that uh, his steward had been handling his affairs dishonestly, some kind of mismanagement. We don't really know exactly what it was that's, that's shared here, but he is called on the carpet. He's called to answer for this. Now, it it's, looks like he's not being fired like on the spot. He, what we would call in our language, he'd be given a notice. All right, this is like your 30-day notice. You cannot be my manager any longer. I'm going to look into this affair, find out the depth of your deception or whatever, but you're out of here. You can no longer be my manager. Now, at this point, uh, we have this amazing kind of thing that happens in this passage because this, we enter into a kind of a soliloquy. Uh, you might call this a kind of a scheming soliloquy. Because he begins, we, we, no words are said, we actually enter into this man's panic. You've got to feel the panic of this man. Because he thinks, and you realize instantly, I'm losing my job. And he kind, of, kind of goes through his head, like the possible you know, like options he has. Like what are the, what's the path ahead for him? So he says, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig. Okay, so this, is, this represents like all kinds of professions that involve, you know, physical labor, which would be one of the big options of that day. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. This guy is, he doesn't know, he can't get another job as a steward, because now he's been discredited. So that door is closed to him. He isn't strong enough to, to dig or work labor, manual labor. He's too ashamed to sit and beg. And then he has, we, we enter in again, this kind of the light bulb goes off. I know what I'm going to do. All right, it's actually, uh, in, the, in classical Greek, it's, the, uh, it's that kind of dramatic aorist. Uh, the, the aorist where you suddenly get an idea. Oh, now I know what I can do. And he rushes out. It's very important that the, whole, the word quickly is used. He goes out and he goes to all of his debtors, and we get just two examples of them. And he goes out to them and sits down with his, with his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He tells them. That comes down to 800 gallons of olive oil. Okay, take your bill quickly. He tears the bill up. Makes a whole new bill. Okay, let's make it 400. This is great, man. These people, are, these people can't believe it. This is, like, this is better than the you know, Kmart blue light special. This is like really great. And next guy, how much do you want to manage? A uh, thousand bushels of wheat it comes out to. Okay, take it up, make it 800. And then this is implied, he does this to all of the, the debtors of his, of his master. 
Now, at this point, there is disagreement about exactly what's going on here. But the, the good thing is, it, the disagreement may take away the sting of the hardness of the passage, but it doesn't change the point. Some will say, well, what he's really doing is going around and taking away the usury, okay, that he had actually piled on top of this, the, the real bill, all kinds of exorbitant interest. And he's reducing it back to the righteousness of the Jewish law, which prohibited exorbitant interest. Some say he was actually giving up his commission. And so he was like, okay, I'm giving my commission because I have a better plan in mind that you'll help me down the road. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think he is piling evil upon evil. All of the patristic uh, writers of this, uh, reflecting on this passage, felt the same way. And Jesus himself... And uh, when he responds to this person, it refers to him as the dishonest manager, the, the, evil, the wicked man, not the repentant one. This is not in the category of Luke 15, where the man goes out and squanders his father's possessions, repents, and comes back. There's no repentance here. So this man has heaped evil upon more evil, and of course... Uh, that's why this passage is so difficult, because it seems he's commended for act, the dishonest manager is being commended by the master. Now, what's interesting is that he is commended not for his dishonesty. This is where we have to get, what is the point of this? He is commended for his shrewdness. So now we have two themes at play here. One acting decisively in the face of an impending crisis, in this case being fired, and two, doing something really shrewd about it. Now, this is really a big lesson for us. Now, if you think about the worldly culture of which we, of course, are part, the larger culture of the, of the society we live in, we know a lot about preparing for potential disasters. It's a big part of our culture. If you go on to, as I have done, an insurance site to see what kind of uh, preparations you can make, let me give you a few. Life insurance. Okay, something happens to your life, your family, your loved ones are covered. Accident insurance for your automobiles. Everybody here probably has some kind of accident insurance. Medical insurance, in case you come down with various kinds of illness, sickness, cancer, whatever. There is, believe it or not, wedding insurance. Yes, you, all the preparations, all the money, the dress, you know, the rooms, the, 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 all this stuff, and then it doesn't go through. I know this will never happen to you, but some people out there have found this very helpful. Wedding insurance. Cell phone insurance. People lose their cell phones. Have you ever lost your cell phone? Okay, there's insurance for that. There's workers' comp if you get injured on the job. There's aviation insurance or traveler's insurance in case your plane goes down in a fiery blast. Isn't this great thing about all these things that can happen to you? There's earthquake insurance, in case you get caught in an earthquake. In California, people have earthquake insurance. There's terrorism insurance, in case you're recipient of an act of terror. Just think about the things you can prepare for. There's even kidnapping insurance, in case you get kidnapped. Right out of, you know, Grice Hall. Just whoop. <laughs> gone one day, gone. This, this could happen to you, and you could be prepared for it. I had a man visit me once when I was a pastor who knocked on my door, came into my office, and to my amazement, this is no joke, this was not on the insurance site, but this is like a special niche thing. He was selling me and other pastors 
sermon insurance. Now, what I thought he meant by that when he first kind of introduced the concept, which I never had heard of, I thought he meant, oh, that's great. If it's Saturday night, you know, and you haven't gotten your sermon ready, you could like log on and, man, the sermon would come through and you'd you'd be ready to go, right? Get a good Jessica Legrone sermon there, you know? Man, I'm all for it. (laughs) But it wasn't that. It was uh, sermon insurance meant that if you uh, preached a sermon, and you laced it with some advice, you know, some ought. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. And someone did it, and it didn't work out. They can sue you. I thought, it, I, I thought preaching was a great you know, gift from God. He's trying to tell me it's just endless liabilities. <laughs> that sermon insurance didn't last very long. The point is, is the, Jesus is saying to us, and we totally get this, that the world knows everything about preparing for all kinds of contingencies, not to mention 401ks and all the stuff that's done for retirement. We know all about all of that. And Jesus is saying, but think about it. The world knows how to prepare for everything that might happen, but they do nothing to prepare for the great cataclysmic judgment which will happen to everyone. The whole world will stand before the judgment seat of God. The whole world will respond to God's call to our lives. We must all give an account for our lives. There's no exception. And yet, we do nothing to prepare for that. The world doesn't think about that. This is the whole drastic action, the decisive action. The whole incarnation is ultimately about God looking down. This is where we have to care about the kind of seen this as some kind of uh, extended uh, working on who, what, lines with what, because Jesus in many ways actually identifies with the steward at this point. Because when God looked down on the, on the earth and he saw the situation we were in, our situation was much worse than this steward. And we weren't just having a job problem. We were trapped in sin with no escape. No hope. No alternatives. We were in, we should be in panic, even if people don't realize they should be in panic. This world should be in a panic because they are in sin, sinners by birth and by choice, and they have no option. And God did something drastic. There's nothing more, there's no more drastic action than the incarnation. God coming in the, in the teeth of all of this judgment and taken upon himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God knows how to act decisively. He's also commended for his shrewdness. And if you think about it, uh, we first encounter this word for shrewdness in, of all places, Genesis 3.1. Because there we find the serpent is craftier. He's, he's wily. It's, it's arum in the Hebrew. It's, he's cunning more than any of the other creatures. So from the very beginning, we get this idea, and we should, that Satan is very crafty. He's cunning. He's a, he plots against us, right? He maneuvers things against us. So he's the great maneuverer, the plotterer. And that unfolds all through Scripture. And it comes right into the New Testament. Psalm 18, which we could have sung today, 
1826 is very interesting. It says this, the part of the prayer is this, to the faithful, it says, God, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. To the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. It's a, it's a doctrine we don't think enough about. God being shrewd. God being a plotter. When I teach my Islam class, there's the, we, one of the things we look at is the 99 names of Allah. And since we're asked to look upon them, because there's a tradition in Islam that Allah has 99, they call beautiful names. And you see Muslims in the marketplace, they have this thing called a shubah, which they, has 33 beads, and they'll be reciting three times through the 99 names of Allah. And I'll ask our, our students, well, you know, what, what, what do you think about these attributes? And one of the ones they always pick out that they find troubling is Allah is the plotter. He's the schemer. Because, see, we don't know what to do with this idea that God can be a plot, one who plots, one who schemes. And so we find in Jacob, uh, for example, in the Old Testament, how Jacob is a one who plots and schemes. He he gets the birthright from his brother Esau. He, he, plot, he schemes his way into the covenant. But God takes this wrestler, and guess what? God out-wrestles him. Balaam tries to scheme and plot for his own advantage and tries to find a way to, to get this money and get this you know, blessing and yet also be faithful. He tries to play it both ways, and God outplots him. And turns the blessing, into, the curse into a blessing. And of course, there's no greater example of God plotting and scheming greater than Satan is at, is at the cross of Christ. Satan is plotting, he's scheming against the Messiah. He gets one of Christ's own followers to betray him. Think about it. What a, what a, and Satan was like, yeah. He gets the Jewish authorities to move against him. He gets the Romans to condemn him to death. Satan is plotting against the Son of God. Satan's plan is to get the Messiah, the Savior of the world, nailed to a cross. What he didn't know is that God was outplotting him. God was showing that Satan's power could be overturned by God's weakness, by his vulnerability. You see, God is a, he can plot, he can scheme in a way that we can imagine. There's a side of this word, which is, I think the English word captured, shrewdness, acting shrewdly. This man is, com is commended not for his dishonesty, he's commended for acting shrewdly. He went around to make friends for himself so that when he was, got the axe, he would go out and be received by, into the dwellings of all of his friends. His greatest hope was that his worldly friends would welcome him into their homes. But God is saying, how much more important for us to act shrewdly in this world, to act decisively, that we might, through our own resources, the gifts and graces that God has given to you, act in ways that will make abundant treasures in heaven, Think about it. When you die, you'll be welcomed in eternal dwellings by those that have been blessed and honored and multiplied through your ministries. Think about it. 
You preach the gospel. You pray for this person. You have no idea. You know, we, we have no idea how to calibrate the extent of our lives, our ministries, our prayers, our work, our preaching, all these things. Half the time we wonder if anything gets done at all. But someday we'll be welcomed by those who receive us and say, because of that prayer, because of that decisive action, because of this or that, kingdom work unfolded. God's work was done. They say that the grand chess masters, uh, what makes them grand chess, chess masters, they can think uh, 10 to 12 moves ahead of the, the net, any potential plays. Okay, so they're playing chess. Okay, if you're a normal chess player, you can think two or three moves ahead, right? A grandmaster can plant 10 moves ahead. That means 10, including all the possible responses to your 10, right? Gary Kasparov could think 16 moves ahead. That's why he was a grandmaster of the world. He played the blue, deep blue computer back in the, I'm not sure what year it was, but he played uh, the first human to ever play a computer in chess, and eventually uh, the, the computer won. They had six matches, the computer won more matches than Garry Kasparov did. And they asked him afterwards, when did you know that you lost? He said, I knew 16 moves before the end that I was done, that he had me. The deep blue had me. I could not escape. God, it, it, it's an insult to say that God knows a thousand moves ahead. It's too small a number. God has the infinite knowledge of every possible move that you can make, I can make, that Satan can make, and God is plotting his kingdom to come. God is scheming in ways that we cannot imagine. Things like the cross itself, which God does his greatest work under a cloak of failure. God do, does things that we don't think are, are fruitful, but we realize actually God is plotting, scheming, even using so often when Satan overreaches. And Satan always overreaches. And God brings his victory. So whenever you think about God's unfolding work in the world, Never forget that God is the supreme plotter, supreme schemer, and he calls us to act so wisely in the world. This word, world is, this word is used 15 times in the New Testament. Mostly it's translated acting wisely, but it also means acting worldly wise, knowing how to get things done, how to think through things how to let God use us to work in this world in ways that we cannot imagine. Do we understand that there's a great cataclysmic event coming into the face of the earth? It is the final judgment of God that will come upon the face of the whole earth. And Jesus is calling us to totally get the fact that this calls for drastic action. And sometimes we have to learn a lesson from the world. They know how to look after themselves. They know how to act decisively. They know how to plot and scheme. We too should take a lesson from this. We should learn how to act decisively in this world. Take bold moves. The, the incarnation is the boldest of moves. God acted boldly, courageously. It's, hard, it's almost an insult to use words like that. It's so bold, so amazing. 
And God was allow, allowed things to unfold in ways that even when it seems like he's defeated, he's actually just plotting his moves. And we can be confident despite all of the disasters around us in the world that God is unfolding his plan and his will. And we know that in the end, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the insight of this parable. Oh, Lord, deliver us from our cautiousness about our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for not acting boldly, not acting shrewdly in this world. Lord, give us an insight into that part of your character. For we know when you finally say to us, checkmate, Lord, you do this in love. And you do this with a great heart that loves the world, that you plot against us not to defeat us, but to win us into the kingdom and to redeem this world. Thank you, O God, for your work. In Jesus' name, amen.